Well, some people are really good, I think, at being able to see things on different levels. They can see, you know, they can look at something and see that there's, there's a sort of superficial meaning there and then there's something maybe deeper under, underneath. That, that, I'm not good at that, I have to say. I can usually, in that respect, I can usually grasp the low-hanging fruit. But this stuff usually gets lost on me. Let me give you an example. Uh, even I can pick up Right, that on the movie Avatar, what you've got in that movie is a massive guilt trip on America for the way that they historically took the land from the Native Americans. I picked that up, okay? I, I, I figured that one out all on my own. It's a, it's a movie about blue aliens living on a planet colonized by people from Earth who start out by trying to befriend the natives, and as soon as they learn about a weakness, they try to exploit it and to get rid of, rid of the... It, it, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, the plot? You see there? But apparently, quite a lot of movies have these deeper meanings that are perhaps a little bit more obscure and hard to get hold of, certainly for someone like me. They've got symbolism in them. So, for example, according to one movie analyst, get this, the X-Men movies are a parable for gay rights. Did you pick that up? No? Batman, The Dark Knight, is about the war on terror. It's a critique on the war on terror. Groundhog Day is all about Buddhism. Uh, and Aliens, one of my all-time favorites, is an allegory for the Vietnam War. Did you know that? <laughs> Who knew? Who knew these things? These deeper levels that you have. And now, as we look at this last bit of Mark chapter 7 together, I think a similar observation can be made with this text. Recently, I, I had a conversation, it was, it was only a week or so ago, with someone where they were telling me that uh, their home groups that they'd started, their Bible studies, were different and more helpful than what you get normally in most churches, uh, because in their studies... You don't just work out what the text means, but what it's saying to you as an individual. Now, if I was being charitable, I would understand that to mean, what I would, under, what I would mean if I was to say a sentence like that, that, that we have a real strong emphasis, we understand and we apply, we apply the text and we try to think about how it applies into each individual person's life. But I got the distinct feeling in this conversation that what they were actually saying is that each person in the group read the passage from the Bible, and rather than working out what it was actually saying, they just decided to, to say what they felt it was meaning to them. Now, can I say that's slightly dangerous ground when you read the Bible? You've got to be very careful when you read the Bible that way, because there's a danger. You can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say if you take that approach. It's important to remember that every text of the Bible has one original intended meaning given by the author. That's actually true. And it's true of the text that we read this morning from Mark chapter 7. But any single text might have a number of different ways in which it can be applied to us, a number of levels. That's also true. So I want to suggest that these verses we've just read have at least two levels of application for us this morning. There's a surface lesson, and there's a slightly deeper lesson, and they are well and truly interconnected, so don't worry, we're not going off somewhere random. And I want to suggest to you that Mark's actually intended and written it this way 
for us. It's very interesting, actually. In this little episode, you get, obviously, a wonderful miracle where a man with, uh, with, with no hearing and with uh, speech problems has it all restored. It's a wonderful healing. But the deafness of this man is actually a picture. It's a picture of the lost state of mankind. And we need to get both levels, really, in this passage. So first of all, then, if you get it in front of you, what you've got here is a wonderful miracle. Have a look with me from verse 31. We read, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. And there were some people who brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hands on the man. Now, if you've been coming regularly, you'll remember that this comes directly after the incident we last looked at, where Jesus has met with a, with a fantastic woman, this Greek woman a pagan, from a pagan background. She's met with this woman in, uh, up in the north, up in basically, she's gone in, he's gone into, into Lebanon. It's a strongly Gentile area that Jesus is in. Uh, and he goes from there up even further, up into Sidon. He's right in the south part of, of Lebanon, just south of Beirut, really. He's right up there. It's not Jewish territory anymore. And then we read here in this first sentence that having spent some time up there, Jesus now comes back down. So he's coming back down to the Sea of Galilee and to the ten cities of the Decapolis. So looking at you, from you looking at me, the map, it's over this side of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis is sort of over here. So Jesus has come down. He's gone on a pretty good ramble. He's, uh, he would have been really, really at home with the Emmaus Ramblers. Well, he, he was. It's from him that they get their name, isn't it? Now, last time Jesus was in that particular area there, off to the side of the lake, do you remember the story? Jesus met, in Mark chapter 5, he met a man who had a legion of demons inside him. He was thoroughly, utterly demonized. Very, very sad story. And uh, when Jesus left that area, the people had actually sent him away. They asked him to leave. Leave this area, Jesus. As Jesus is trying to leave, the man who's been uh, restored, released from all of these demons, comes to him and says, Jesus, can I come with you? I want to follow you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to stay here. You need to go home. And you need to tell everybody what the Lord has done for you, the wonderful things that he's done for you. And so this man then, we're told, goes into the Decapolis, into these ten cities, these ten sort of pagan cities to the side there of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And he tells the good news. Now, it would appear from what we've just read that he was pretty effective because there's, there's been a complete change, hasn't there, in the people. The crowds are here to see Jesus in this area. The crowds that I assume once sent him away because it was bad for their economy now they're welcoming him as, uh, as a great person to, to come to. They're bringing their sick to him. But Mark is interested in telling us about one man in particular, and that's where this story goes. He's brought to Jesus clearly by his friends. And this man was deaf. And he'd clearly been that way since, well, since very young, since before he could talk, really. Perhaps even from birth. His speech was also badly affected. I wonder if you've met people like that who, who can't pronounce the words properly. Very hard for them to make those sounds because they've never heard the sounds. Uh, and even if they had heard the sounds, when their own voice speaks, they can't hear themselves making the sounds. And so, of course, the communication gets all muffled and mumbled. 
Well, this was an affliction that would have had a terrible stigma attached to it. Imagine the reactions of people seeing this, especially in Jesus' day. Unlike blind people, people are going to stare at this man perhaps more. They'll hear him and turn to look as he tries to talk. Uh, And people would think him stupid if they didn't know him because uh, he would be unable to understand them or to respond to them. Imagine what that's like, living with that. No doubt he's used to people being impatient with him because they don't know his struggles. Rude to him, perhaps, because they wouldn't immediately be aware of his, his condition. And his speech impediment, probably announcing itself loudly due to his lack of hearing, would, would certainly have attracted the attention of the crowds, wouldn't it? This poor man, think about his situation. Let's sum him up. He, he can't ask questions. He can't communicate with people. He can't hear explanations from people, even. Undoubtedly, he couldn't, couldn't read. How would he have learned to read? Certainly, even if he had access to the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures would have been hidden to this man. He, he's, he's shut out from really hearing the Word of God at all, isn't he? And do you see how he starts to become slightly a a picture for us? Here is a man completely shut off from the world, unable to grasp what others perhaps could really, really easily grasp around him. And what Jesus does next is extraordinary. Take a look with me, verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. Now, this is quite unique, isn't it, in, in the healings, uh, healing accounts that we get of Jesus. You've got a lot of detail there. You, you've got a blow-by-blow account of how this healing actually happens, and that's intentional. But what's it all about? Well, I think the most simple explanation here, as you read through the description of what Jesus does is that Jesus here is graciously condescending to meet this man exactly where he's at, isn't he? He, He's bending his ear to him. Here is a man acutely aware of the stares of the crowd. Imagine living with that, people looking at you all the time, self-conscious when in public. So Jesus, what does he do first of all? He takes him away. He's away from the gawping crowd. It's really kind, actually, isn't it? And I take it what follows is, is basically rudimentary sign language. Imagine that. Have a look at what Jesus does. He puts his fingers in the man's ears. These need to be opened. I'm going to open these. It's like he's saying. I'm going to open these. Here's where the problem is. He spits. He touches the man's tongue. This tongue, I'm going to, I'm going to loosen this tongue. I'm going to free this tongue for you. And then he looks up. This is coming from heaven. This is going to come from heaven. God's doing this for you. And then there's a, a deep sigh of compassion for his plight. And then he says probably the first word this man's ever heard in his life, Ephathar, be opened. And the ears of this man, of course, can do nothing but obey their maker. Have a look, verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened. And he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's good, isn't it? It's a great miracle. It's wonderful. 
As usual, the power of Jesus, do you get this? The power of it, it circumvents any need for this man to learn. There's no need for his brain to rewire itself like you know, we would have to rehabilitate, for his, his mouth to learn to make uh, the, the shapes necessary to make language. No, no, this is instant, isn't it? It's instant healing, it's in, instant restoration. Mark pointed out, doesn't he, he began to speak plainly. There's a a clarity, a a plain speech to this man. He's thoroughly, utterly restored. That's the way Jesus always healed. And somewhat ironically, in verse 36, Jesus commands them not to tell anyone. I mean, that's like giving a kid a new bicycle and telling them not to ride it, isn't it? They can't help themselves. They can't stop themselves. After all those years of frustrated groaning, what do you think is the first thing this man wants to do? There's no shutting him up. There's no shutting his friends up. They just want to tell the good news to everyone. Okay, so what does it all mean? That's fairly surface, superficial. You could come away from that just thinking, wow, Jesus just works fantastic miracles, doesn't he? Another account of a wonderful miracle. And on one level, what you do have here is another example, as we get so many in the Gospels, of Jesus's stupendous authority, something we've seen over and over again. But, but actually, it's moved on again a little bit stronger here. Do you remember when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000? Again, the, the levels of what's going on there, that we're pushing things on a little bit further. Well, here's a miracle, here's a healing that does that as well. You see, everyone who saw Jesus in action would know these healings come from God. Yeah? Here is a man through whom God is doing wonders and signs and miracles and healings. But I think Mark is pushing things a little further with this incident. And I think he's being quite specific, and I want you to see why. See, I find it incredible that there are people who can, and they'll card you, they say they've read through the Gospels and they see no real evidence in the Gospels that Jesus is actually God. They can't see the evidence there at all. Mark is the only gospel author to mention the healing of this man with a speech impediment. Okay? In fact, there's actually only one other reference to the mute speaking in the whole of Scripture. Did you know that? Uh, it's, it, the same word used here is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament at Isaiah 35. Have a flick over to it. Isaiah 35. I think it's really worth looking at this. We can maybe put it up on the screen if, we've, if Marcus is, is pretty sharp on this. So we can pop it up on the screen here. I want you to see this. It's really worth turning to. The only other mention of someone mute. Isaiah 35. Let's read from verse 3. Here's what the prophet writes, speaking God's word. He says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Your God, Elohim, your God will come. It's the word for God, okay, the creator God. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. It's the only other reference to it. So I think it's pretty well safe ground to say, we're supposed to look back and remember this. We're supposed to bring this one up. There it is, verse 6, follow it through. The mute tongue, 
The mogilalos, that's what it is, the, the mute tongue. But, but did you catch the context in which Isaiah is saying this? Verse 4, be strong, he says to God's suffering people. Do not fear, why? Because your God will come. Your God will come, he will visit, he will be with you. Hang in there, says Isaiah, because your God will come. He will come, verse 4, he will come to save you. A saviour is coming. God the saviour is coming. And how will you know that he's come? Verse 5. Then, when he comes, then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Conclusion? Your God has come. That's the point, do you see? Your God has come. It's emphasised, isn't it, here by Mark? And actually, you see it emphasised again in the last sentence, if you, if you want to pick up on it. Have a look at the last sentence here in, uh, in Mark 7, where they're talking about, uh, about Jesus. Do you see that? What do the people say about him, the last sentence? He's done everything well. He's done everything well. An echo, perhaps, in Mark's mind of Genesis chapter 1, when God looks at the creation and says, it is very good. Everything is done well. Everything is good about Jesus. This is not just God working through a man. You could make that conclusion from these miracles, and quite often miracles are God working through a man. That's often the case in Scripture, but not here. This is God come down to earth. How do you know? The mute are speaking. The mute are speaking. The promises of God are fulfilled in him. Your God has come. So we have an amazing miracle on one level. A pretty unambiguous meaning to it here is that it points to the divinity of Jesus. He is the son of God. But that's not the only reason that Mark has put this story here. We're going we're gonna to peel back another layer now. There's another layer. So you need to understand that Mark in common with all of the gospel writers, has arranged his material with great care. You know, you remember, Mark is kind of like a sidekick to the apostle Peter, who saw everything. I mean, Mark has access to a catalogue of everything that Jesus ever did or said, which, which, you know, John writes, doesn't he, and says, you know, even if the whole world were, were full of books, they couldn't contain all the wonderful things Jesus so Mark's got a lot he can select from, but he picks Specific things, arranges them in specific places for a specific reason. And, and in fact, here there are, there are actually two miracles that he does this with. You'll see at the end of, of Mark chapter 8, verse 22, you've got Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida as well. There are two miracles here, either side of something we're going to be looking at after Easter that Mark has put into chapter 7 and 8, which no other author includes, and they're both there to make a similar point. And, and, and the reason we're building up to this is, this is the crescendo of the whole of the first half of the book of Mark. You've got to see that this is where it's all really going. And it's all about deafness and blindness. It's all about deafness and blindness. Now, you'll recall that this is a theme that's been running through Mark's gospel. That's why it's reaching its crescendo here through the first half. Jesus is being constantly misunderstood and not comprehended. It's happening all the time. In fact, it's the reason that Jesus switches to using parables, because people's hearts are so hard and they won't see. 
The religious leaders would rather conclude, do you remember, that Jesus is in league with the demons than that this is really God's power on display. That's the kind of deafness we're working with here. The crowds are fickle. They're only there really for the healing of the sick and to fill their stomachs with food. And the disciples, well, they're a major disappointment, aren't they? Do you remember verse 18 in this chapter? When Jesus teaches on clean and unclean things, verse 18, are you so dull? That's the kind of language Jesus is is speaking to his disciples. We're going to get more of it later on in chapter 8. Are you so dull? Do you still not understand? The condition of this deaf man here and of the blind man later, they're functioning as bookends to make a very strong point. They are functioning as a parable of the state of mankind. One of the greatest barriers to belief for human beings is hardness of hearing. It's the first big obstacle that must be overcome, isn't it? They just don't hear. We can preach the good news all day long. We can spell it out to people over and over. And the trouble is that, naturally speaking, it just doesn't go in to people's ears. Do you ever find that? You bring a friend to church, you're hoping the gospel's going to be going to be clearly preached. You ever, you ever done that? Brought someone to church and they've agreed, finally agreed. And you sit down in church and you're thinking, oh, I, re- I, really, ho- I really hope Andy preaches it clearly t- today. I really hope it's... And, and you find yourself sitting there and you're actually really thinking about every word that's being said by everyone. And you're sort of, you're almost hearing it through the ears of your friend that you've brought along. You're hoping. And then relief of relief, it's a good message, you know. The gospel was preached. It was clearly preached. You understood it. And you're sitting there sort of furtively looking at your friend, is he getting this? And when you talk to your friend later, there's, there's just nothing went in. And you're like, how on earth did you not hear it? You know, I get this when I talk to people after I preach. Uh, and, and, uh, and often people relate back to, I'm not, I'm not saying this to you, <laughs> that it's anyone here in particular. But, you know, I, I talk to people, people come to me and talk to me after I've preached, and they'll relate to me some banal detail of the sermon. And I think, did you not get the main point? Did you not get excited about what I was excited about? And there seems to be, a just didn't hear it. You know, I guarantee we'll see this happen next Sunday at the Easter services. You'll see this deafness. Even if I preach clearly about the sin in our hearts that results in God's judgment on mankind, our desperate need for forgiveness. Even if I preach there, and I, and I preach with, with power, and I, com- and I try to convince people of how sinful they are. If I try to convince people that we are rightly viewed by God as objects of his wrath because we are ruined. Even if I preach about the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin, to wash us clean, even if I put the Lord's Supper in front of them as an object lesson to look at and understand it as it's explained. Even if I explain the victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus that gives us a living hope, a certainty of eternal life. I can preach all of those glorious truths. Even if I preach the clearest message possible, even if I shout it at the top of my voice, it's not going to help. There will still be many who are unmoved. It, 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 It baffles me. They simply won't hear it. And listen, it's not just belligerence. It's not just people being difficult and being silly. They can't hear it. Like this man, 
there's a profound deafness that stops it even, even initially getting in there before they can even think it over. There's a deafness. Mark records this miracle to illustrate the deafness of mankind. And he, pre- he tells us this to, to teach us, actually, also, I think, about the solution to that deafness. There is an answer to the deafness. And my third and final point is all application, really, here, as we look through this story just one more time. Let's sweep through it. How to minister to a deaf world. I think, I think um, Marcus is a couple of points behind, but we'll be all right. It seems to me that in the details of this healing, that Jesus actually illustrates to us, shows us an example to follow of what a ministry is going to have to look like if it will effectively reach a deaf world. It's quite interesting. Jesus does four things here, and we're going to look at each in turn just very briefly. Uh, We're not going to necessarily look at them in the order they are in the text, but we'll look at each one. The first one I want you to see is the look. The look. Verse 34, what Jesus does there. He looked up to heaven. I put this first because I just think it's so crucial. Why did Jesus do this? Why does he look up to heaven? Because he's always dependent on and working alongside his father. And he makes that so clear, doesn't he? Prayer is absolutely crucial if we are going to reach a deaf world. You want people to hear your words, you need to speak to God first. It's an interesting sort of paradox, isn't it? Talk to God first. There is only one who can open the ears of the deaf. Only one. I'm sure we all know people, you'll be thinking of people perhaps, who have been unresponsive to the gospel as you've tried to explain it to them. Think about the conversations you've had. Sometimes when you, you, you know, you've given a, a tract maybe to someone, a booklet to them over the years. We preach the gospel in this room to a bunch of teenagers almost every week during term time. They sit right there. I stand down there. I don't stand up here. I stand right there, right up, eyeballing them face to face. And we preach it clearly. Now, those things are all very well, but, you, but they're deaf. So the first thing I need to understand if I'm going to preach to them is they're deaf. I'm preaching to deaf people. And we must face up to this reality. No amount of clever reasoning, no amount of being articulate or eloquent, no amount of impassioned appeal or shouting is going to make the blindest bit of difference unless God opens the ear. And we've got to be reliant on God to do that. So what do we do? We pray. We pray. We must get serious about praying for the lost. I don't know what that will take for you. Maybe you just need to make a list. Get those missionary bulletins. Get, get to the prayer meeting. Really, get to the prayer meeting. Make that a priority. Can I say I've been just a little bit discouraged about attendance to the prayer meeting? Uh, maybe I have unrealistic expectations. But it feels to me like, like the numbers are just ever so slightly declining at the monthly prayer meeting. More, more people are here, I think, on a Sunday morning, and less people are here to, to, to come to a monthly prayer meeting. Why is that? Brothers and sisters, if, if we are serious about seeing deaf ears open to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to look up. We've got to do it. We need to plead with our Heavenly Father that he will work the miracle that only he can do. 
Please join us in praying for the lost. That's the first thing. And we've got to get that one in place before anything else makes any difference at all. But the second thing we see here is the sigh. Have a look again at verse 34. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha. Jesus' sigh, I put it to you, is a sigh of deep compassion. It's compassion. Of course, he knew, that what, he knew exactly what he was going to do within the next minute or so for this man. But I take it that the very sight of the condition of this man standing in front of him, as Jesus stares into his eyes, right in front of the man, brought forth a sigh from our Saviour. I think he looked at this man and he was moved. He saw the ravages of sin on this world, a world that's broken. Broken by the fall of mankind, existing under a curse, groaning away, not as it should be. Do you sorrow like Jesus did for the brokenness of the world? It's a really important question to ask yourself. You know, we say it quite often, don't we? It, 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 we, we see the downward spiral of the world. The world it is, and our society does seem to be getting, getting worse, doesn't it? It seems to be accelerating into this kind of moral and ethical bankruptcy. We just don't even seem to know how to think ethically even anymore. And it's accelerating, isn't it? And I'm sure many of us could reel off a whole load of shocking issues that we're aware of going on that urgently need our prayer. You know, last week I got a bulletin from the Christian Institute. Last week it was no-fault divorce trying to be pushed through. Uh, the report that the UK is funding £42 million into a global abortion programme. Uh, and the forcing of assisted suicide, the agenda for assisted suicide within the Royal College of Physicians. That was just last week. Well, let me ask you then, how do you react to those items when you hear them? Is it just a moral outrage that you have? Uh, and maybe that's a right response. There should be a, a moral outrage. But do these things make you sigh? Do you weep? over the six o'clock news? Or are you just morally outraged by it all? Picking up the phone, oh, have you heard what's going on now? How do you respond? As with Jesus, it's the looking to heaven that will make us sigh for the world around us, isn't it? And it's the sighing of our hearts that will move us to pray. They're interconnected. Well, thirdly, what we see here is the touch. Verse 33, have a look. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. Now, it's, it's easy to see, isn't it, in the Gospel accounts, we get this over and again. Jesus was very hands-on with people. He, he cared about people. He touched the sick. He embraced the unclean, didn't he? He got down with the, the lowest. He mixed with the outcasts. Remember him sitting at a meal with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He never seemed to be too concerned about what others might think about him. He, he got down and dirty in ministry to people. His compassion led Jesus to reach out physically to people. Speaking about the, the healing of the leper earlier on in the Gospel, Kent Hughes, an author remarks this way. He says, how beautiful Christ is. He could have just spoken a word or simply willed it, 
but he chose to lay his hands on the poor man in front of the multitude. The onlookers and the disciples were shocked. Jesus was now ceremonially unclean. To their way of thinking, he might catch the disease. Why did Jesus do it? There are perhaps several reasons. Reaching out, of course, was the instinct of his loving heart. But he also wanted to clear away any fears the man had. He wanted the leper to feel his willingness and sympathy. The touch said, I'm with you. I understand. You know, the church in this country does have a wonderful heritage in this, in bygone centuries, doesn't it? And I guess also today. There are examples of many wonderful movements that have been started by believers who, again, just like Jesus, didn't care what society was going to say uh, about what they did. They saw a need and they went to it. You have great men like William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army to, to minister to the urban poor that nobody else was going to. Georges Muller, who founded an orphanage in Bristol, took in took in over 10,000 orphans, imagine that, in his lifetime, took them in. And great women like Elizabeth Fry, she used to be on the five-pound note, I think she's been taken off, that's, a, that's not good, is it? She used to visit the filthy prisons of the 19th century. She took clothing to the women there. She, even in the prisons themselves, started schools and chapels and taught the scriptures to them. Wonderful examples to us, aren't they? See, as Jesus looked to heaven and then looked to the man, he sighed with compassion and then reached out his hands to minister. That's precisely how we need to minister to a deaf world. We need to be doing that. But the fourth thing, most critical too, isn't it, is, is the word. Be opened. He speaks. He speaks. And we know that. We're evangelicals. We know about the speaking part of this, don't we? We need to speak the gospel to the world. Uh, we need to hear about the other things we need to do. We need to be challenged about them too, don't we? But we know we need to speak. We need to bring the word of God. It goes without saying, at least I hope so. You can't minister to a deaf world without bringing them the word of God. That is, the scriptures. Any other words? Well, they're not going to make any difference, are they? As we pray and sigh and reach out to and, and touch people, we must be willing and not scared to open our Bibles and to share also with them the word of God. Remember, as the writer, of Hebrew, writer to the Hebrews assures us, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And the interesting thing is, the Word can do this stuff on its own, can't it? It's God's Holy Spirit Word. It can do this ministry of ministering to a lost word all on its own. And yet, there's an incarnation to this ministry. There's a putting flesh on it that we see in, in the example of Jesus here. As he goes to the man, touches, cares, sighs, and brings God's word and brings his ministry to the man. That powerful word, used by the Spirit, can do it all. But Jesus models for us how he wants us to minister here. In closing, can I just say, remember all of us, we, we do forget, don't we? All of us in this room also were once deaf. Deaf to God's word. At some point, someone came to us with God's word, didn't they? 
Probably they cared for us. Probably we saw something in them that was a wonderful example. Maybe they did reach out to us in some way and care for us. Doubtless someone prayed for us. Someone prayed for us to hear. And God opened our ears to the gospel. Like the man in this story, when your ears are opened and your tongue is loosed, the most natural thing to do is to want to speak to others, isn't it? And to speak clearly. May God help us to do that this week.